Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. When I was a, a kid, I was in, a, in a, an organization that has seen better days, honestly, called Boy Scouts. Are you familiar with Boy Scouts? And one of the ways we ended, we had Monday nights. We, we always had a Monday night Boy Scout event. And one of my scout masters would chew through an entire cigar during that Monday night. He never smoked. He just always chewed it, chewed it all the way down to the nub until it was gone. Uh, another one of my scout masters just sat in the same chair every time and whittled something. He whittled chains. You know, you can take one piece of wood and whittle it into a chain. And they're all interlinked and there's nothing broken in between. I was always amazed by that. The, the men just sat there. We did our little mirror badges things, and at the end, we had time for a game, and our favorite game was a certain version of dodgeball that I don't think kids play anymore uh, for liability reasons. Uh, this, uh, this is my son's dodgeball set. He loves dodgeball. Dodgeball is one of the, his favorite things in the world for, I think, three birthday parties in a row. We just went to one of those bounce places, you know, Defy, and uh, they just played dodgeball until his arm was ready to fall off. But if you, you know, look at this, it's a pretty soft and squishy dodgeball. We used to play with these kind of harder plastic balls, and we called it murder ball. Did you ever play that? And the, and the rule was for the Boy Scouts, we, we just, everybody played skins. So you ditched your shirt, and then we played for about 30 minutes, skins, murder ball, where everybody threw the ball just absolutely as hard as they possibly physically could. And of course, you have this big gap of guys, right? You have 18-year-old guys who are getting ready to tap out. They've already got their, their Eagle Scout thing. And, and then you got 12-year-old boys who are just coming in. So these poor 12-year-old boys would walk out with welts, just, you know, welt, 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 welt. And something crazy about us guys. I don't know why. We came back the next week. And we did it again. So, I mean, it's a long time between 12 and 17. It's a long time to wait to be able to murder somebody else. But murder ball was the name of the game. And, you know, as, as it followed basically dodgeball rules. If you get hit, you're out. If you're holding a ball and you block a ball and you don't drop the ball, you're not out. If you catch a ball, you're not out. They're out. One of your guys comes back in. Remember this? And you had to make a decision. Are you going to dodge or are you going to block? Dodging and blocking was one of the key decisions. Now, you, if it's one person throwing and you think you've got to jump on them or enough speed, you can dodge it pretty quickly. If there are multiple people, it's down to you, you're outgunned, and there's about three or four balls coming at you all at once, full speed, you might want to hold on to a ball and block, right? I think it's just a metaphor for us, especially since it's called murder ball, and trying to make Esther a little bit lighter. I'm just trying to, I'm trying. Esther's a heavy book, right? This is sex trafficking, it's genocide, it's tyrannical despot kings, it's drunken rulers just passing laws for no good reason, it's lust-driven men saying, I'll give you half my kingdom, give you whatever you want, lady, ask for anything. I mean, it is, it's a dark book. 
So I'm just trying to lighten it up a little bit with a kid metaphor, dodgeball. Do you dodge evil or do you block it? When you are in the face of evil, do you dodge it or do you block it? Now, in dodgeball, in murder ball, it's actually wise most of the time to dodge. If you keep trying to block everything, eventually you're gonna get burned. You will get burned, it's just a matter of time. But there is gonna come a moment when the best play is to block, especially if there's one ball left on your side. You got it. And there's only one other teammate. They don't have a ball. And they're behind you and there's four other teammates over there ready to hurdle balls. You gotta block that one column or they're going out and the whole team's going down. How do you know when to dodge evil and when to stand up and block it? Esther, uh, you've probably already turned there, um, is in the middle of that decision in this part of the story. As you remember, her Hebrew name is Hadassah and she has been forcibly placed into the king's harem. So this wasn't the beauty pageant, this is forced um, intimate relations. You don't have some way out, either you are chosen as one of the king's favorites or you live a life of isolation for the rest of your life. It's just one, one of two options and neither one's absolutely wonderful. And there are many other women in this harem so just because she becomes queen doesn't she mean she is now the center of pomp and circumstance and oh, I became a princess. No, it's, it's not a Cinderella moment. It's not a Disney magical, uh, when you wish upon a star, and her name doesn't mean star. No, it's actually a pretty difficult situation that she is trying to navigate. She is forced into a place that's outside of her culture. She is in a harem, which is basically the king's depository of women he can have at any time he wants. I want that one, I want this one, I want this one, I want that one, I want this one, I want that one. It is sort of state-sponsored brothel for the king. And she's forced into it. If she resists, she could be killed. And now this story is building with all of this tension and there is a second in command. Haman has been named viceroy, so to speak, the second in command to King Xerxes who rules from India to Ethiopia on the map the largest kingdom to ever exist up until that time. He has power upon power upon power, wealth upon wealth upon wealth, and he raises Haman up to second in command. Now, remember, Esther used to be Hadassah. They gave her a Persian name. Esther was a orphan, and her uncle, Mordecai, adopted her while they were in um, exile. So they're in exile. Many people have been killed along the way. Think Ukraine except way worse, mass exodus, uh, many people dead, and she has lost both of her parents in this atrocity. Mordecai takes her under his wing, she's an orphan, Mordecai is the one caring for her until she goes into the king's palace. Mordecai is now sitting out at the gate when Haman, the second in command, the viceroy, the, the one who's the right hand man of the most powerful man on the globe, comes by and everybody else trembles and shakes because this man can snap a finger, hood over your head, you're dead. He, he can look at you wrong and everything goes bad. It, it, it's not just murder ball, it's murder. 
<laughs> it's just straight up murder. And there's no way to dodge it. And there's no way to block it. So uh, if you, you want to dodge it ahead of time, in other words, just don't even get on the court with Haman. But Mordecai stands up straight and tall and says, I'm a Jew. I do not bend my knee for anyone except for the one living God. Haman is enraged. And you may not have been here the first week we talked about narcissistic rage. But the narcissism of the king has passed down and narcissism has now infected Haman's heart. And anybody who won't bend down and worship him like a god enrages him to the point of not just murder, genocide. He wants to kill every single living Jew on the planet. He wants every one of them dead. So Hitler wasn't the first one. And actually, Haman is a descendant of another character in the Bible that Saul was supposed to kill, King Saul. And Saul didn't obey the Lord. And so the descendants of the enemies of Israel have lasted. And it comes all the way down now to Haman, this Amalekite who is going to continue what the Amalekites have always done, trying to kill every single Jew. It's a dark story, right? And here we are picking it up in uh, verse 14. For if you keep silent, Esther chapter four, verse 14, for if you keep silent, at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's household will perish. And who knows whether or not you have come to such a high place for such a time as this. Come into the kingdom for such a time as this. That great phrase that we always love to say. Who knows but that you've been put in this position for such a time as this. And we'd love to say that to somebody when they receive a promotion, you know. Maybe you've been placed into this position for such a time as this. We'd love to talk to our graduates when they're going to school. Hey, maybe you have been put into this school for such a time as this. And I want to say, do you remember the context? The such a time as this is is forced sex trade. It's a lavish, ridiculous gap between the rich and the poor. It's the oppression of multiple nations across the globe. It's a monstrous demonic empire. It's genocide just about to happen in a few days. That's such a time as this. Welcome to your time, Esther. This is your time to shine, Esther. So, Esther is being faced with a murder ball choice, except it's not a ball. It's just plain murder. Do I dodge or do I block? And Mordecai is trying to convince her that what she is tempted to do, dodge, stay silent, duck, in the Hebrew literally slip away will not work anyway. You're outgunned. There's too many people on the other side. They're all loaded and aiming for you. You will be knocked down. You will be taken out. You're gonna die anyway. And maybe, after all, this is the reason God allowed you to go through such a horrific evil. But then once that evil had happened to you and you were forced for years to go into the harem and all the preparations and then you had to go in and please some man, 
you've never known, not knowing if you will ever see him again or if that's the last time you will be with any other man except a mangled eunuch. Be the only man she'd be allowed to talk to. Maybe God allowed this evil to happen to you for such a time as this. Uh, Here's the first principle for me anyway out of this story. When evil attacks the innocent, God's people speak. That's what Mordecai is saying to Esther. When evil attacks the innocent, outguns the innocent, gangs up on the innocent, plays murder ball with no ball, it's just plain murder against the innocent. God's people don't stay silent. God's people don't step back. God's people don't cower in a corner. When evil attacks the innocent, God's people speak. And you're one of God's people. Last I checked, your name is still Hadassah. No matter what they're calling you, you're Hadassah. And you have a birthright placed upon you. You have a calling laid upon you. There is a mantle upon your shoulders. The divine God of the universe, the creator of all that is, the only one who is worth bending his knee to, has placed you in a position not for your own goodies, not for your own luxury, not for your own comfort. This life is not what this life is about. Your life is about others and the next life to come. And you have a job to do now. And it's not about saving your neck this time. Now most of the time, most of the time, I, I just need to give this caveat again. It's a really wise thing to dodge evil. When the risk is high and the reward is low, <laughs> don't chase evil. Uh, just before I went to, we mentioned this in the prayer meeting this morning at 6 a.m., just before I went on this trip to the Philippines that I was just on, came back after a week and a half or whatever, teaching for the seminary, uh, the Every Nation Seminary that we've launched. I taught for about two, three hours, a hundred Chinese pastors in our movement in the underground church in China via Zoom. So 100 pastors, all up and coming new leaders that are being birthed out of this multiplying discipleship movement in the midst of persecution. So think these older leaders, if you see them, there's mangled hands, there's scars on faces, there's literal marks of persecution, right? So teaching these Chinese pastors, they are in the middle of such a time as this kind of life, right? That's a, such a time as this verse. Perhaps you have been placed in a oppressive country, a closed country under the persecution of your neighbors for such a time as this. And when innocent people are staggering towards slaughter, don't pretend like you don't know it. When innocent people who've never had a chance to even hear Jesus' name, you need to know this. People in China, have not, many of them, have not even had a chance to know Jesus' name. The lead pastor of our movement over there, I'll just call him Pastor Jay. Before he was evangelized by our, by our movement, he'd never heard J-E-S-U-S one single time. 
Now, I know it's hard to believe that in a Western society with all the Jesus everywhere and, and the, the necklaces that we have with the crosses and the, and the surfer dude Jesus and the, the, you know, the party man Jesus and the blue jeans Jesus and the sweet baby Jesus all wrapped up in swaddling clothes, you know, right? We got all kinds of Jesuses. We got Jesuses everywhere. Never even heard the name one time. That's a, for such a time as this situation. And when we're in that, God's people speak. Can I give you some other murder ball situations that are from our time? Uh, just bring up that next, if you don't mind. In Mariupol, in Ukraine, uh, officials estimate over 20,000 civilian deaths uh, have happened just in Mariupol. 20,000 civilian deaths, either by bombing, shelling, or starvation. Now, Russia is intentionally, strategically targeting the food and water supplies of Ukraine. They are not just targeting military targets. They're hitting uh, hospitals repeatedly. It's too many times for it to be an accident. They're hitting schools repeatedly. They're hitting apartment complexes. But they're strategically targeting food and water supplies like an old-school Assyrian siege. We're going to starve you out. And they are. They're dying from lack of food and water. That stuff is happening today. Sixty-three million abortions have happened since Roe versus Wade. Since abortion was made kind of a standard constitutional right of our country. Now, if you've gone through that, uh, let me just say for a second that I did not always live a pastor's life. Uh, There's an abortion in my history. So I'm not speaking out of a lack of knowledge. Um, But the loss of life from that that is unnecessary, but is pressed on people as though it is necessary or normal, is staggering. Uh, Tennessee has 6.9 million residents, 63 million abortions. I think that's something uh, just under 20% of the current U.S. population. And if they were born in 73, all likelihood would be they're still alive. Do you hear? What's happened? Uh, and, and I know there's all kinds of complexities, and I'm not trying to erase those complexities, um, the, the endangerment of a mother's life and other uh, st- terrible, horrific circumstances. I'm not trying to erase all those. But just choice, followed by another choice, ending up in... My opinion... <laughs> That's a murder ball moment. 24.9 million people live in slavery today. 24.9 million. Now that's a conservative estimate that the officials are telling us to use even though they think it's more, it's hard to measure these things because so many are hidden. Um, Every year we, we find in the United States somebody chained in a basement somewhere. In the United States. Um, in uh, 4.8 million of those 24.9 million are forced into sex slavery. So almost 5 million people right now are in forced bondage to perform acts with their body they do not want to perform again and again and again. You can sell uh, cocaine one time. 
you can sell a human body again and again and again. Those who undergo transgender surgery, uh, what do they call that? Um, gender reassignment surgery. Uh, the largest longitudinal study ever done was done by Sweden. You can go look up Sweden's longitudinal study on transgender and gender reassignment. Largest and longest ever done, the most accurate, showed that uh, those who undergo that surgery are 19.1 times as likely to commit suicide after 10 to 15 years than the control population. Now, the goal of that surgery is to, of course, reduce psychosis and reduce depression and frustration, but they're 19 times more likely. Now, the assumption is, of course, by all of those in society pressing these sort of things, well, that just means they need more counseling. Wait, I thought the reason for the surgery was to reduce that, but that's not being reduced, but we're still going to say the surgery's helping? There's actually no uh, truly scientifically physical way to change genders you end up with a masculinized female or a feminized male. Scientifically, even with all the hormonal treatment and retraining of the voice, and I'm not trying to judge anybody because I know people go through all kinds of things. I'm not judging anyone. I really am not. We all have our brokenness. You've heard me say this before, a bunch of broken people stumbling towards glory, falling down a lot along the way. Every single one of us has our own brokenness. I'm not elevating one against another. I really am not. But if what we're pressing in society is leading people towards self-harm and death, but we're telling them it's for their best, we're misguiding them, that sounds like this to me. I can't stay silent. Out of love. There's a certain object in my home, I won't name it, but there's a certain object in my home that every time I look at it reminds me of a man who was delivered from that powerfully by the Holy Spirit with a deliverance experience who's married, has wonderful, beautiful kids, just sent me a note for my birthday, two pages long, praising God for all that, that has happened for him. He's had absolute deliverance, but he is aligned with his birth sex, not dysphoric with his birth sex. God has brought his psyche into alignment with his body, which is how that was created to be and it can happen, those are the stories that aren't being told. In the United States alone, uh, 10,000 to 50,000 new victims of sex slavery emerge every year. This country, my country, where I was born and raised, the country I'm proud of and love, love this place. What a wonderful country we have. Nothing has ever been like it on, on the planet in the history of the earth. And yet, that's going on, depending on the year, 10 to 50,000 new victims of sex slavery here. And two-thirds of those are United States born. They're not brought in. They're abducted. They're groomed. They're twisted through drugs and other activities and then forcibly pressed into that. That sounds like this to me. Psalm 82.3 says this. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Do you hear those verbs? They're commands. This is a direct command of God to us. 
Uh, Isaiah 117 says this, learn to do good. I love that phrase. In other words, Dave, (laughs) buddy, (laughs) you have to learn to do good. Dave didn't wake up in the world and start doing good. Dave didn't just stumble in at seven years old or 15 years old and accidentally do good. Dave in his natural nature is selfish. Dave in his natural nature is combative and argumentative. Dave in his natural nature is all kinds of things but good. Dave in his natural nature would choose to do things that will make Dave less happy again and again and again, and then wonder why Dave is less happy. Dave doesn't want to do good things that actually make Dave more happy, because Dave's lazy and Dave's selfish. (laughs) But you're not like that. You naturally do good things all the time, and all the right things that you want to do, you keep doing them. And there's nothing in your life that you're failing to do that you wish you would do, right? (laughs) So I love this verse. Learn to do good. Let the Holy Spirit be the teacher. In other words, we have work to do. We have work to do in growth, right? Learn to do good. Seek justice. Pursue it. Chase it. Try to figure out what is justice. Justice is one of the most commonly mentioned words in the Bible. Kind of (laughs) matters. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Now, it's... We, we need to speak, but it's not enough to just be a social justice warrior, a little SJW on Facebook or Instagram or whatever, talking about all the problems of the world like you're not a part of them, right? What are we actually going to do is what we need to ask. What are we going to press for? What's the solution, not just the problem? Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Do you hear those words? All of that is a way of saying, when the innocent are under attack, God's people don't dodge. They don't just stay silent. They stand up in front of somebody else who has no other way, and they block. At risk to themselves. Let's turn back to Esther. I'm just trying to put that in the the modern context so that we can at least see how that might apply. Let's turn back to Esther. So uh, we were in verse... Uh, 14, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. In other words, he never says God's name. Esther never says the name of the Lord because the subtle message of this literary uh, device is to say that God seems invisible, but he's not, as as Pastor Bryson uh, taught so well. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Now, you see what's happening? She's having to send messages through a eunuch. Uh, if you don't know what that is, go look it up later. I'm going to keep it as, uh, I mean, it's already been PG-13 all night. That's as far as I'm going, okay? All right? You go look it up if you don't understand what that is. So she has to send messages because she's not allowed to see another man but the king. So she has to send messages. No longer can talk face-to-face with Mordecai, her mentor, her uncle, her father figure. She's separated from him. So she, she sends messages. Go tell Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat, now catch this, or drink. Do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. I've only done that one time in my life. It was one of the hardest fasts I ever did. Three days, three nights, 
no food, no water. By the end of day three, I was in significant physical pain. You, they say three, you can go for a lot longer without food, of course, but three days, that's about as long as you should go without some kind of harm happening to you if you go much longer than that. So on the afternoon of the third day, things got so significant for me, I had to give in to a half a cup of water. I just, I felt like I, you know, I didn't have anybody help me, no medical guidance. I just had to. So I've only done that one time. We read past these kind of details, right? She's desperate. She is terrified. Go have them fast for me. Why? She's being asked to go stop being silent. She's being asked to talk to this narcissist king who if he snaps his finger or just looks away from her, she's killed immediately. So you go fast for me. You go fast, you pray. That's what she says. Go, don't, don't eat food, don't drink water for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. So she takes all of the young women who are under her influence in that harem and has them do the same thing. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. This, by the way, is one of the uh, primary texts in the scripture that points to civil disobedience. If you haven't heard of that phrase, civil disobedience, it's a pretty important phrase. The intentional act of disobedience of a law because it's unjust. As Augustine said, St. Augustine said, an unjust law is no law at all. I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I die, if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. I want to give you a few things that come out of this passage in terms of how we deal with this. When we're facing injustices, when we see injustices, here's a few things that I think we can do as Christians draw from it. One comes from the context before, but number one, uh, grieve the evil publicly. Publicly. Mordecai puts on sackcloth and ashes and he comes right up to the court of the king where all the officials have to see him. Sackcloth and ashes are a known symbol in that time of deep grief, sorrow, and repentance. And not only does Mordecai do it, but Jews all over the kingdom, India to Ethiopia, everywhere they're getting this edict that they're all gonna be murdered soon, they're in sackcloth and ashes all over the place. So they grieve the evil publicly. A fancy word for that in church speak is lament. We need lament. At times, we need to sing songs of lament. At times, we need to pray prayers of lament. At times, we need to preach sermons of lament. God's people should shed tears. God has a bottle where he's gathering each of our tears as his treasures, and he actually doesn't seem to want that to be empty because there's things we should have tears over. Grieve the evil publicly. When Ahmaud Arbery and, and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd were killed, we grieved publicly, and it was the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. When we see that many people dead before they even born into the world, we should grieve publicly because it is a sad thing. Now, I grieve privately for my own personal journey with that. I grieve every year of my life. But that's not what this text is teaching us. 
Something powerful happens when we grieve publicly and it's not able to leave the news cycle. You know what's getting ready to happen if we're not careful. Ukraine's going to leave the news cycle because Americans lose attention really fast when it's not us dying. A thousand just died in Afghanistan from an earthquake. We'll read that this morning. By tomorrow, we'll be moving on. Now, if a thousand Americans died, we would want that to be a marked day for history for all time. <laughs> There's just something about us. It's, it, we don't do it intentionally. I'm not mad at us. Something about human nature does that. I think it's probably the same in Afghanistan. If a thousand Americans died, they'd forget about it by two days from now. <laughs> they just would move on because that's not them. Uh, grieve the evil publicly. Two, convince the passive carefully. Esther is passive. Hadassah wants to hide under Esther's robes. Haven't I gone through enough? Haven't I suffered enough? I lost my parents to these people. They murdered them. I've been taken away from the only father figure I had left. I've been shoved into a man's home who is just a megalomaniac. I can be killed at any moment. I can be called into his presence any day or left alone for the lust of my life and I have no idea what it's going to be. Haven't I given up enough? She's going passive and she wants to go silent. When we're facing injustices in our society, some people will just start to let it roll off their back. It's part of our job as Christians to keep convincing each other that's not good enough. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. That's who we are. My own denomination that I grew up in, uh, it's not this movement, it's the Wesleyan denomination offshoot of the Methodists. Um, we were actually kicked out of the Methodists because in 1844, a guy by the name of Orange Scott presented 44 different proposals. They called them memorials back then. 44 different proposals in one conference. Now you usually have like 18 proposals for the whole conference. He alone presented 44 different versions of proposals to end slavery among Methodists and to say that it was a sin. <laughs> 44 different, that's a lot of writing. I mean, if I had a computer, that would take me a long time. <laughs> I did it all by hand. He drove them nuts. He was the fly. They couldn't swat off their shoulder. He was <laughs> So the Methodists, especially the Southern Methodists, took Orange Scott and all of his cronies and kicked them eventually out of the church. They pressured them into smaller and smaller churches, removed them from their posts, put them far out into the country, and then eventually just removed churches from them and gave them no salary, basically forcing them out of the church because they were abolitionists and then the Wesleyan church was born. So I grew up in North Carolina with a little camp that I would go to um, that there was a chapel on the edge of that campground and it was just an old flat board, uh, like a, looked almost like a barn chapel, but it had a, a cross at the top and benches inside. I could put my finger in the holes in that chapel where the bullet holes went through. Because two by two, Wesleyan preachers went around trying to convince people to stop being passive about slavery before the Civil War. In the South, 
So a preacher's up preaching against slavery in a pulpit in North Carolina, and you know those good old boys came riding in on their horses with their guns loaded and started riding around the church. Everybody dove under the pews, and they loaded the church full of bullets. You could find bullet hole, bullet hole, bullet hole, bullet hole, bullet hole, bullet hole. And when all the guns were empty and they heard the hooves right off, they got back up, sat in the pews, and finished the sermon. Carefully convincing the passive. Sunday after Sunday, week after week, travel after travel, argument after argument, detail after detail, text after text until the passive could be convinced. This isn't a minor issue. People are dying. This is this. It's murder ball. But it's not a game. It's just murder. And we can't stay silent. Convince the passive carefully. Number three, Fast and pray together communally. Fast and pray together. You know that that's a regular habit of our church. When the next one comes up, I hope that you'll participate in it. The, the proper fast, though, is not just to stop eating so that you can lose weight. <laughs> a lot of Christians are like, oh, good, we're going to have a fast. I kind of needed to shed a few pounds. Uh, you know, what are you doing for the fast? Well, I'm, I'm getting rid of all the carbs and I'm making sure I'm hoping I can just get in. No, that is not a fast. That's idolatry of the body. That's worship of some culturally made image. I don't know, Greek gods and goddesses that we don't need to be. All different shapes and sizes are fine in the eyes of the Lord as far as I'm concerned, right? No, to, to fast properly, Scripture tells us, is to loose the chains of injustice. So when we fast, part of the reason we're fasting is because there is a bondage of spiritual power, a dark power that we believe is spiritually holding people in check and putting people into activity they wouldn't otherwise do. It is demonic, and we're wanting to enter into the spiritual plane, sacrifice something physical as a sign of the spiritual, and focus our attention on God's power because only God's power can break those things. And this is not a war against flesh and blood. This is a war against principalities and powers, and they're at war against us. They want to steal, kill, and destroy. And their path of destruction, they would love to make it as wide as they possibly can and get humans, murder-balling humans, murder-balling humans all over the place. It is a spiritual war. And this is a spiritual weapon. When we don't just do it privately, we fast and pray communally. Something happens. That's when the Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. That's when Paul and Barnabas are set aside later in the book of Acts. That's when John gets his vision and revelation is born in the Bible. Something happens when we fast and pray. Uh, Four, take the risk of speaking to power. If you read a little bit farther in the story, Esther says, if I perish, I perish Mordecai then went away, did everything as Esther had ordered him. And verse one in chapter five, on the third day, this is the end of the fast of both food and water, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarter while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. All those details are there to let you know she went as far as she could humanly go. Into the spaces she was not allowed to enter. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. 
And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. She is starting the process, and we're not going to get to the rest of the story, that part of the story tonight, but she is starting the process of risking speaking to power when she knows it could end up this. She's going to try and block it if it's coming. Anything she could do. And she's going to be very wise about it. She doesn't just throw it out there first thing. I believe in that fasting and praying time, wisdom was given to Esther on how to approach this king, this drunkard, this egalomaniac, this lust-filled jerk the right way so that she was presented in a lovely way and played on his weakness so that she then played to his ego so that she then fed his stomach and she put wine in his hands and she did it more than one time. She did it two days in a row. This is the guy who, after he had a 180-day feast, wanted another seven-day feast with lots of wine after, right? Golden goblet in his hand. Everything set up as wisely as she can, but she speaks to power. We can't stop doing that whether that's a a letter or an email to a politician, whether that is a petition that we're signing, whether that's just us standing with our bodies and saying things together in the public square, whether that's the vote that we put in on election day, we cannot stop doing that. Otherwise, this happens to innocence. Number five, we speak the way God leads us to speak. How do you know whether to dodge or to block? Well, part of that was we listened to the counsel of others. As Pastor Bryson said last week, if you can't hear God, we'll hear through others from God. And Mordecai speaks to her and gives her the beginning of wisdom. But then she's fasting and praying, and I believe wisdom is coming from there. And then she does everything in a very particular way. I believe God's spirit is guiding her and then working through every single detail to set up the grand reversal of the story where the murderer is the one who dies, where the ones whose children were supposed to be killed are the children who are saved. And the one who is going to kill their children loses his children. Where the ones who are going to be under the thumb of the oppressor are now raised up to power. Where the fulfillment of God's judgment on the Amalekites is accomplished finally through Mordecai. Where everything gets reversed is through obedience to what was revealed in prayer. Now, those of you who are here Wednesday morning, 6 a.m., you might hear me say this often. It all happens here. I know you can't all be here at Wednesday morning, 6 a.m. prayer, and you're here tonight. That's wonderful. Uh, But when we are able to pray together, when we're able to fast together, that's where it happens. That's the tip of the spear for God's military operations in the spiritual realm. 
It's not that we're weaving magic. We're not wizards with a time stone. You know, I don't know how he did that. What was that thing that he did in, in the Marvel movies? Doctor Strange. And, and the wizards get all their little thing. We're not wizards. We have no power in our hands. It's not about our incantations or our magical spells. It's about our humility, our brokenness, and our willingness to follow whatever the Spirit leads us to do. There's no power in us except that we together are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we together as pillars hold up the temple of the Holy Spirit, in that space things get revealed that aren't revealed anywhere else. We wanna handle Ukraine? Pray. And speak. There's other things we're gonna do. We'll give, we'll vote, all of that, but pray and speak. Abortion, pray <laughs> and speak the way God leads us to. Not just <laughs> no, 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 not picking up our own version of verbal murder ball, no. The way God asks us to and guides us to speak. You want to deal with sex slavery and human trafficking all across the globe? Pray fast. Pray fast. Then speak the way God leads us to speak. You want to turn the tide in our culture that has been just shifting so rapidly that now that there's an agenda being pressed on our kids in the school that's indoctrinating them in things that we don't believe? Well, we better pray. We've got to fast. And then we better speak the way God teaches us to speak. And there'll be other things he tells us to do, but that's always at the core. One last thought for us. We are not made for easy times. We're made for meaningful times. That for such a time as this is not a, for such a wonderful time as this, for such a princess's palace as this, for such a dream crystal stare to glory as this. No, we're built for meaningful purpose in the world. You know what one of the most meaningful things is that ever happens to a human being? They suffer for a righteous cause and win. I tried to lighten it at the beginning with the murder ball thing. I don't think I actually did. It just kind of, maybe that was an epic fail. I don't know. Uh, because the truth is, if we're called to follow Christ, we're called to be made fun of. We're called to be rejected. And we're called to be hated by the world. If they hate you, do not be surprised, they hated me first. If they reject you, do not be surprised, they rejected me first. If they hate your words that came from me, don't be surprised, they hated my words first. But do not be troubled, I have overcome the world. It may seem to us that the entire universe is gathering steam and the other side of this gym is just full of people holding a murder ball, ready to throw at hurtling speed, and they're 28, not 17, and I'm five years old. But God is more powerful than any of them. 
And I seem to remember a little boy with five smooth stones who battled the way God told him to battle and brought down an entire kingdom that looked like it could not be beaten. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this powerful story of Esther. It is so rich. We're just scratching the surface of the depths that are there in this beautiful story that is tragic in its beauty. Lord, we are faced with murder ball situations that we don't know how to handle, and in the split moments, we're making decisions to dodge or to block, and sometimes we're blocking when we should dodge, and sometimes we're dodging when we should block. We need your guidance more than ever in the church today, in our society. Holy Spirit, we need you to speak. We need your prophetic insight. We need your revelation. We need you to give visions and dreams. We need you to put words in the mouths of your gifted leaders who will speak those words with clarity and courage and not speak anything else. We need you. We need you to get us out of our worship of comfort, worship of leisure, idolatry of pleasure that our society wants to sell us day after day so that we can enter into suffering for a righteous cause for the sake of a glorious victory. We want a meaningful life. We don't want an empty life of ice cream cones and Netflix shows. We want a meaningful life when slaves are set free. Victims are restored. Chains are broken. Communities are saved. Nations are preserved. We want a meaningful life. We want to lay our head down on our death pillow and say, for such a time as this, I suffered for a righteous cause. And look what God did. Lord Jesus, help us to become, even more than we already are, a community that prays together, fasts together, and speaks together the words God gives us to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? I uh, just want to say, it is an absolute pleasure to be with you. It is good to be home. It is really, really, really good to be home. And we have work to do, good work to do. We have churches to plant. We have neighbors to win. We have coworkers to love. We have families to disciple. We have our own hearts to lead towards the Lord, don't we? It's worth doing, church. It's worth doing. The other way to live, (sighs) it's not worth the paper it's printed on and the dime store novels that they sell it with. It's just not worth it. So let's go face this week with joy, knowing that we aren't ever standing on the murder ball court alone with only one ball. Actually, our big brother, he's a really big brother, is standing in front of us, and he's leading the way. We can fix our eyes on Christ Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and he'll see us through. 
go with God. You're dismissed.